what you'll hear on Patreon. I remember in um, George Orwell's Road to Wigan Pier, which I think is one of the best books that's ever written, George Orwell, he quotes from the Daily Mail, and it's 1935, I think, and the Daily Mail's headline is something about the working class have too much sugar. Um, you know, no one needs sugar. Sugar is sort of an empty thing. And if you haven't got any money, why are you spending your money on sugar? And George Orwell sort of quite rightly said that, you know, if you if you work in a factory or down a mine, you need that sweetness. <laughs> you have, You need that bit of sweetness. It's not a luxury. It's actually needed in order to keep you going. And I think that, I think, there's a lot of that in, you know, what working class people do consume and do buy. You know, working class people, despite what middle class people think, they, in order to keep going, in order to sort of live their lives of scarcity, they have to have things to look forward to. They have to have some, you've got to have something to look forward to. Lisa McKenzie, you are an anarchist, ethnographer, and the author of the widely cited Getting By, Estates, Class, and Culture in Austerity Britain. What do you think of that introduction? Is it still true? Are you still an anarchist and ethnographer? I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all true. Um, it's, I mean, everything is true. I'm still an anarchist. I am still an ethnographer. Um, unfortunately, for most of us who now work in universities, um, a lot of our politics and also our research uh, doesn't get funded or isn't valued. So I'm still all of those things. But does that mean that, you know, uh, anything that, you know, I can, I'm being funded or, or does it mean that, um, you know, the research can still go ahead like it did? once I think these are sort of big questions about academia actually you know what sort of research gets funded what sort of research gets put out um you know time pressures of earning money to pay rent and also trying to do research and also trying to say something interesting and important and challenging in the world so even though I, I am all of those things um life you know, you you know the the university system. Um, perhaps it, it it doesn't support people like me in the way that it should. I obviously am also at a university, and um, I found it very difficult to get funding for the kind of critical research that you want to do because you find yourself having to say, "Well, I'm going to meet these policy objectives, these sort of yeah. policy objectives." And, you know, what I want to do is I want to sort of critique the underlying sort of basis and premise of the policy objective. Yeah. And that becomes quite difficult. And, and also, I also think as well, when you're an ethnographer, one of the things that you don't do is you can't say what you're going to find out. Um, and, and that's proper research. And I think that, you know, now we're in a situation where in order to get any sort of funding or any support, you need to say what it is you're going to find out. I'm going to find this out. Now, as an ethnographer, you that's bad ethnography. <laughs>
you know, so that's sort of a, that, that's a premise of not good research. If you can tell someone, you know, what it is you're going to find out, then, you know, do, just do a literature review. Don't do, don't do the research. So I think ethnography in particular um, is a research method that's perhaps not understood properly in universities. It's not carried out well at all. Um, funders and publishers uh, probably don't, they value the storytelling of it. Everybody wants the ethnographer on the panel to tell the story. But actually to get that story, you might have had to do two years um, research to get that one story. So, you know, I mean, I've sat in so many panels and sat on so many, uh, seen so many interviews and so many uh, sort of academic talking heads who's talking about, you know, I did ethnography. I was three months in this particular area. There's no way you can do ethnography in three months. It's, it's, it's impossible. No, you know, getting no. by, getting by was a process of seven years. Wow. So, I, feel, yes. I felt bad that it took me seven years to write my book, but then I didn't do anything interesting like ethnography. But for those who don't know what ethnography is, can you give a bit of an explanation? What is it as a as a research method, as an ethos, as a way of life? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is. It's, it's sort of bigger than a research method. You know, it's if you treat it as a research method, which is qualitative, you know, you go into um, a space you become what we could say embedded in that space. So a lot of ethnography is done in schools or workplaces. You know, you go into a system or a structure or a space um, and you become embedded in it. So a lot of ethnographers might go into a workplace or into a school, um, you know, and they might do ethnography because they're the teacher or they might work, you know, they might work at that workplace. So therefore they're doing research, but doing it from the inside. So, you know, the, the methodology of ethnography is, you know, interviews, um, you know, it, it's observations, but it's so much more than that, you know, be, by being embedded in that place. And for me, it's always community. It's about being embedded in a community. So, you know, you, you, you do the interviews, you do the observations, you do the things that, you know, they teach you in university to do the focus groups. You know, but these are just these are just the the way that this methodology is described. Oh, it's not de it's not described in that way. So those those methods are used. You know, when I do a, a focus group, it's usually perhaps four women, and we're all sat in the same calf, and we're sat in a you know we're sat in a calf, and we're having a cup of coffee around a table, and we're in a social place. Or in getting by, I did a lot of my focus groups and interviews in the community centre, you know, in a, in a public space. So, you know, the problem with the way that academics or the acad academic world speaks about ethnography is they, they use these sort of formal terms, but it doesn't actually describe what an ethnographer does. Um, you know, doing an interview, you know, it's not a formal interview. You're not sort of sat with someone over a table and you've got a list of questions. Um, you know, you might be in someone's home. You know, the television. Like when I when I did Getting By, I found that morning television was a fantastic way 
to talk to women about their lives. So, you know, I'd go to women's houses in the morning and there'd be sort of three or four of us, focus group, we'd have the television on. You know, most sort of research uh, classes that you might take, you know, in a university, they'd tell you that you've got to have like a script, it's got to be a quiet area so the recordings can work. If you go into somebody's home, you can't tell them to turn the television off. So, you know, what I found is that you use your setting, you know, as a way, as, as tools. And so what I found is when I went into women's houses, they'd got the morning television on, you know, and there'd be sort of chat shows on. And we'd all sit and talk about what, you know, what we thought about the people who were on the chat show. I found a lot, you know, I've got a lot of good stories about, you know, sort of using breakfast television as a, as a tool. And could you, I, could you, Tell me one of these stories. Well, yeah, you know, for example, you know, when when we was sort of sat, they'd be say four women. Um, you know, they would have all come round to one of the women's houses in the morning. You know, I'd said, "Can I come round?" And they've gone, "Yeah, yeah, of course you can. We've all got a cup of coffee." You know, and there'd be something like, uh, I think it was Trisha. The the program was called Trisha at the time, and you know, they'd have a you know, they'd have different people come on and they tell their life stories, you know, about their husband cheating on them or their wife, you know, having an affair with their best mate or something like that. And what we do, and then, you know, we'd sort of sit there and, you know, we say, oh, if that was me, this is what I would do, you know. And so what, what I found out from those, they were like almost like prompts. What I found out is, you know, working class women's, you know, the, the television were just was just prompts for what working class women's stories were about. You know, we, we were talking. You know, one of the things we were talking about was um, the, on breakfast television. There was, I'm not sure this still is. I think there's still are. There, there, there was a lot of sort of shame about benefit claimants. That there are localities where virtually no one has employment has become an important myth of our time. It is asserted by senior politicians, and it provided the underlying rationale for the TV program Benefit Street. Leading think tanks write reports about it, and it provides the impetus for government welfare reforms. The idea of benefit ghettos, where unemployment is a lifestyle choice, is a powerful one that helps justify the government's cuts to welfare budgets. Yet we hope to have demonstrated that this is a myth, in the sense that it does not reflect the facts of the matter. If politicians, policymakers, and those who work professionally with unemployed people are seriously interested in understanding the problem of worklessness in deprived communities, they should first abandon theories and policies and practices that follow from them that position unemployment as primarily the product of a culture of worklessness held in families, passed down the generations, circulated in deviant subcultures, and concentrated in welfare ghettos. If a culture of worklessness cannot be found in the extremely deprived neighborhoods we studied, then they are unlikely to explain more general patterns of worklessness in the UK. However, this does not mean that there is no problem to be explained. Let's take Middlesbrough as the example. For most of the years since the 1890s, Middlesbrough has had more or less twice the national average of unemployment. It is now regularly described as one of the poorest and least economically resilient towns in England. Yet in the early 1970s, because of its low rates of unemployment and high-skilled and well-paying jobs, 
Teesside was estimated to be the third most prosperous local community in the UK, after London and Aberdeen. Rather than a strange sociology that theorizes these changes in terms of a new epidemic of laziness and inherited idleness, for us, a proper explanation of unemployment in Middlesbrough or Glasgow would have to start with the question of, what has happened here? A suitable answer, in our view, would necessarily seek to unravel how global forces and national policies combined to spell the rapid deindustrialization of places, and how this has meant the economic dispossession of the working class in Britain's old industrial centers over the latter third of the 20th century. One result has been that the lives of some of the most disadvantaged members of this class, for families across generations, have been constantly shadowed by unemployment, insecurity, and poverty. This, to us, seems the start of a more persuasive story than one that pretends that there are places where no one works, benefit streets where families have never worked for generations, and where unemployment is a preferred way of life. Benefit Street and the Myth of Workless Communities by Robert MacDonald, Tracy Shildrick, and Andy Furlong. Sociological Research Online, Volume 19, Issue 3, September 2014. You know, if you're a benefit claimer, you know, you're lazy or whatever. And one of the things um, that we talked about when I was with women and, and these sort of programmes came on about benefit cheats, you know, we talked about the benefit system. And actually, is it really cheating? You know, is it cheating to, to want to have your children's father in, in their lives? And this is one of the stories that, you know, I found out from most women that I was interviewing at the time and I was sort of living and working with was that their children's father was not as absent as, I suppose, the media or the, um, I suppose, these benefit, these sort of benefit stories sort of made out. You know, the reason that, that a lot of the men seemed to be absent was because if you lived as a couple, you would get, you'd get lower, you'd get less money, you know, because your, you know, your um, income would be combined and, it, you know, you'd let, get less money. And the women that were already living on very low money. And so what they were saying is they couldn't afford to have their children's father to live with them. Um, and so these were the sort of stories that were coming out, you know, a lot of the children's and fathers and a lot of the kids their dads were in their lives but in order to survive the women had to tell sort of benefits agencies that they the men were not in their lives and so there was all these sort of complications about just surviving you know and the things that you had to do as a working class woman to survive um you know one of the things that and i you know i remember doing this myself yeah. And again, this, this was from advice from other women on the estate is when you go for your sort of benefits interview, you know, one of the things they ask you is, you know, who's your child's father. Now, the thing is, and we all know who our kid's dad is, but the, the, the question wasn't really about who your child's dad is. It was about how can the state get money off them? Um, you know, and, and actually it wasn't going to benefit you because it was be, would be the state taking money off your child's father. So what I found out is that most women had sort of informal arrangements with men, you know, and the men would be sort of giving women money to buy the kids clothes. Now, if that had gone through the system, 
the women would have never seen that money. They would have never got that money. So therefore, what was happening is women were sort of finding new strategies just to just to survive. Well, tell me a little bit more about that that book. So we've kind of just jumped right into it. But can you tell me about how you came to write Getting By? Um, so you you kind of you came from one community, found yourself living in a, a sort of inner city area. And then this kind of led you on this long trajectory to actually writing about not just, you know, you're writing from what we call the the the. Uh, Emic perspective, right? You're writing from the insider perspective. Yes. So you yeah, have yeah. a background with this. So can you give me a little bit of insight into that trajectory? Well, well, I left school. So I left school in 1984. Um, I've started to think a lot about that year, actually, just because the year itself was a, when I left school was really important because it was the start of the miner strike. My dad was a striking miner. Um, you know, and I left school, I got no qualifications and I went to work in the factory with my mom and all my cousins and all my, you know, the female relatives. So I went to work in a factory with them um, and I worked in the factory for 10 years. Um, you know, I was just an ordinary working class woman that, you know, was going out to work. That's what we did. Um, I went, I, I was living in a, a mining community and then, you know, I met my son's dad and he lived in St. Anne's in Nottingham, which was a inner city community. So I'd lived in the mining communities on the outside of the city. And then I moved into the inner city. Um, but And I was I was there, I lived there for sort of 20 years. Uh, and then in 1999, my mum died and. I think, you know, most of us, when these big things happen in our lives, it really makes us sort of assess and reassess. And, you know, I got to, I think I was 32 at that point, you know, and I started to think, you know, is this it? Is this all I could, you know, could I do more? Is there more things that I could do with my life? Um, and so I started to just look around, you know, what could I do? Well, I've got no qualifications um, you know, I'd only ever worked in factories and I'd worked sort of part time in shops, that sort of thing. Um, and so I, I came across uh, a local college course, which was an access course um, and it was access to social work. Now, the reason that I thought I'd do that is because I did know other working class women who had done that sort of thing. And, you know, they'd become perhaps not social workers, but they don't work in the community. And that really appealed to me because, as you know, working class women, we're very em embedded in our communities. You know, our communities are the place where our children are raised. So therefore, we, we value them and we want to care for them and we want to look after them because, you know, they're important to us. So I knew a lot of women who had done these sort of courses and worked somewhere in the community, you know, like in... Uh, sort of youth clubs that sort of thing so I went up to this access course at a local community college every day I thought I would drop out I didn't really think that I would do it um, and I managed to do the course but while I was on the course you know it was an access course to social work but I found that I didn't actually like the social work stuff I thought that, you know, it wasn't the stuff I was interested in. Um, but I did a small module on that access course, to so which was sociology. Um, and I came across a book 
which was called Poverty, the Forgotten Englishman, had been written in the 1960s about St Anne's, the, the council estate where I lived, the community that I lived in. And, you know, I didn't know that you could go to university and study places like where I lived. I didn't know you did that at university because I didn't really know anything about university, even though I was 31. You know, I'd never been into a university. I'd never been to a university campus. Um, and even though the University of Nottingham was just two miles away from where I lived, I didn't even know where it was. So my understanding of sort of higher education was that people went there, did this really clever stuff, you know, and I didn't know what it was. So when I came across this book, Poverty of the Forgotten Englishman, which also they made a film about it in the 1960s, um, and it was about St Anne's, the place where I lived. I was like, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. I want to tell the stories of the community that I live in. Um, I didn't know how you did that, but I just knew that I wanted to do it. So instead of doing a sort of course to get me into social work or community work, I did a sociology degree at the University of Nottingham, um, found that I loved the sociology bit, even the research methods, which later on in my career, I realised didn't really match up to the research that I was doing. But I really loved all of it. And so, you know, three years wasn't enough. So I got a, um, a ESRC one plus three grant, which I was very lucky to get. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to do any of this because, you know, I had to also pay my bills and pay my rent. So the one plus three allowed me to do a master's degree. And then it gave me three years funding to do um, a PhD. I then got another further two years funding from the Leverhulme Fellowship. And that's why the book Getting By was sort of seven years in its making. Um, because it was PA, it was part of my PhD. It was also part of the Leverhulme Fellowship grant that I'd got. And, you know, and then I also had to write it up. So it took seven years to do. Um, I was very lucky that I got those sorts of grants and that funding. Otherwise, it would have never happened. You know, and the conclusion was that there was a book out there that was written by a working class woman from that council estate. When you went back into that community now as an ethnographer, did you have difficulty kind of, you know, there's the famous story in all these ethnographies of like getting in, you know, mm -hmm. like the moment. I knew that I was accepted by the natives. Yeah. Did you <laughs> did you have any any difficulties um, with that um, coming to people as a researcher? Maybe, I don't know if you were researching friends or people that you already knew, but were there any tensions there? Um, not really, because I because I lived there, so I was still there, so I was still living there, and you know most people sort of wished me well and was like, oh, this is great, it's really good what you're doing, you know, and then other people just had no idea what I was doing because remember until I went to the university, I had no idea what it was, I didn't know what they did in there, and so most people actually didn't. They were like, why why are you doing say hands? Why are you researching something good? <laughs> why are you doing us what is it about us and then also there was this knowing so in St Anne's it is a heavily researched area because it's 
you know, it's it's known as a disadvantaged area. A lot of research is done there in Nottingham. So, you know, a lot of healthcare providers go in and do research. You know, the first sure start in Nottingham was put into St Anne's. So the people there, you know, like I said earlier about people being um, watched and everything about their lives being measured, working class people are used to this because this happens to them all the time. So one of the things that I did find is, you know, people in the community wanted to make sure that I wasn't like the others. You know, I wasn't going to just come in and watch them and say terrible things about them and leave. You know, so because I've got the insider, I suppose, you know, my, I'd got family living in there. I've got friends there. My son was there. My son had been to all the local schools. So I've got, I, I got something to risk because if I told sort of terrible prurient stories about working class life, I was also telling those stories about me as well. So I got the same sort of risk as they were taking. Um, the, the, the issues for me, it was about what stories to tell and what stories not to tell. Now, I think, you know, when you're a, when, most ethnographers, when they go into the field, they're going to just tell everything. But for me, you know, I had to, there was a certain protection that I had to have around this community, but also around myself as well. Um, so for me, the, the, the hardest process was putting into context these stories. So, you know, it was putting into context the way that the benefit system works and how particularly working class women are always under scrutiny. They're always being watched. You know, there, there are, you know, the way that the schools treat working class mothers. You know, they, they almost treat them like they are failures and it's, it's for the mother to prove that they're a good mom. You know, the way that, you know, sort of health, health centres and doctors, the way that they view these communities before they've even sort of met them. So for me, it was about putting all that context in and then telling the stories. A lot of what you're saying reminds me of um, research in Canada around Indigenous people, which I harp on about endlessly on this podcast, so perhaps I won't go into it too much, but um, but that's exactly it. Like, Indigenous people are studied to death. They're just constantly yeah. observed and poked and prodded and just like, why won't you behave right? Like, But often through this kind of really patronizing, fawning kind of narrative, like, oh, because of the legacy of colonization, you are unable to live out your foundational role as mothers, and all this crap, right? But what they're yeah. saying is you're a bad mother. That's what yeah, they're yeah, saying. Well, well th this is exactly what, this is exactly how working class people are seen and treated in Britain, that they, you know, they, they, but there's no excuse. They don't, they're not given an excuse. It's just that they are bad mothers or bad people or lazy or, you know, or um, criminal. I mean, you know, there's either... You know, or there's, there's a kind version, which is traumatised. So they will say it's yeah, not your not fault sure because you're cognitively impaired through ACEs or whatever, adverse childhood yeah. experiences. There, there's that narrative, I think, too. I'm not, I'm not sure in Britain, actually, the sort of kind narrative towards working class people is there in the ways that it might be there with other groups um i don't think and, and that's because it's very specific to class 
because the middle the british middle class cannot be you know the 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 sort of better class without the british working class being the worst class so the class system in britain it really relies on the relationship with the other so i'm not sure that the, there's a kindness around working class people in britain to be honest i think there is a cruel i think the british class system is is cruel i think there's a, a sort of innate cruelty to it i think it needs to be cruel in order to exist and that is what the experience of British working class people is, it's a cruelty. You know, it, it's about, you know, the systems being set up to be mean and to be cruel. You know, you have to sort of prostrate yourself in front of people of authority. You have to almost say, I'm so terrible, I'm really bad. You know, this is why I need your help. You, you And this is what the women talked about a lot is the way that you do that but hold some of yourself back so you're not fully humiliating yourself you know you you know a lot of the women they used to say to me for the tape <laughs> so they knew that that they that that bit was a performance so they knew that when they went to the school or when they went to the doctor or when they went to the housing office, they knew that what they had to do was a performance. Hmm. And in order to save their own dignity and save their own respect, and this is the thing that I think middle class people don't understand about working class people. They don't understand that they hold their own dignity and they have respect for themselves. What, but they have to do it in a different way. Because they can't, they, you know, if you go into the housing office and say, you know, I'm very capable, um, I'm very resilient, whatever you throw at me, I'll deal with it. If you say that to them, they'll go, well, all right then, piss off, go and do that. So in order to get any support in your life that you might need because you are disadvantaged by the class system, you have to perform being rubbish and all the all the women knew that and I know that I mean I know that as well I mean that's something that I've had to do in my life so this sort of performance about what the middle class need to make them feel good about what they do but also at the same time you know not giving you anything because you don't really deserve it it's like this constant competition and performance all the time and working class women have to do this and they have to do this in every area of their lives you know if you want if you if you want social housing for a start this is what they were saying about their partners they had to say that they were single mums whether they were or not they had to say that you couldn't get you can't get a you know you can't go to the council and say we're a really capable happy family <laughs> you know and we just want to live you know, in an affordable, safe home, you can't say that because you're not going to get it. That, that's not the right things to say. You have to say that, you know, that you've got trauma or you've got, you know, or you've got these all these other problems in your lives because that's what our social services in the UK are now about. It's about accident and emergency. It's about dealing with the worst at the worst point. 
So therefore, in order for you to get any support, you've got to tell them that you're the worst at your worst point. And the whole system is set up to humiliate and to degrade. That's um, it reminds me a little bit of I was talking to a friend over the weekend and she was saying how the whole mental health narrative in universities has really flipped toward a real cynicism, because for a long time I I would always say like people genuinely believe in their vulnerability, um, but she was like, no, they know they're gaming the system. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But what happens when you know these? I'm talking about working class people mm. who don't want to get. They not get. They don't want to game the system. They yeah. just want the chance of a decent life. No, I don't yeah. mean gaming the system in the sense of like being it, the system itself pushes people toward this. Like in order, you know, it's a, especially like in universities, it's highly competitive and they're like, go, yeah. everybody go to universities to be able to compete better in the workplace. They're like, well, if everybody has a university degree, how's that going to solve that problem? Yeah, yeah. And that's so they, I mean, all, you know, that's something extra, right? Yeah. I mean, also, you know, I mean, I've worked at quite, uh, I've worked at elite universities and the amount of I'm going to say it, I don't care. The amount of sort of elite students that have somehow got learning difficulties or dyslexia is quite astounded, actually. You know, and you read their work and you go, well, you know, I've got members of my family that are that have got dyslexia. With all the will and the help in the world, they wouldn't be able to put things together like that. Yet, you know, I've taught elite students that it's, and they, and that's what it is. It's about sort of gaming that system, and that's and I think that's a good example of the British class system. You know, one group of people, particularly with the, around education, has got all the tools and all the knowledge to game that system, and so they do, and that's about good competition. But another group of people who are who who have access to very little and actually are disadvantaged by the system, have to jump through every sort of hoop to get any advantage. Well, not it's not even an advantage. It's to just get some basics. Get a chance. That, yeah, the things that they need. And by doing that, they are then labelled as dishonest. And I think that's, you know, that's the way that the British class system is. I don't, I, don't, I think, I think it's a cruel, it's a very cruel nasty system that benefits groups of people they know it benefits them and they're very comfortable and very happy with that and you know and while they're benefiting from the system unfairly they're more than happy that there are other people who are disadvantaged by it um you know i don't sort of go in i i've been around the british class system all my life I don't see any kindness in it at all. I see a cruelty. I see a real cruelty, a nastiness, a vindictiveness, um, and a fear. There's a real fear in it. And I think, you know, when you work in universities, you really do see that because, the, you know, the one thing that the middle class have is their sort of hold over education. You know, and if you start to rattle that a little bit, you know, you you see that, you know, that's the space you're not supposed to be in. And I've, for my whole academic career, you know, I've had to learn that the hard way. 
is, you know, I go into their their system and I believe what the sheen is because that's what they're telling me. They're telling me that, you know, that they are interested in inequality. They tell me that they want to end inequality. They tell me that they understand it. And I believe that because that's what they tell me. And then when you get into that system and, you know, they, they're saying things like, you know, oh, we're only going to accept people with three A's. Uh, and, you know, and, and the, the school they went to is very important. Uh, you know, I sat in a elite university meeting about funding for master's students. And I, I'm going to be really honest here. They looked at the students and this is master's. So there's very little funding for master's students out there. And it's usually the, the part where working class students fall fall because they can't afford to do the master's to get any further because the master's degree is expensive. They can't afford to, to pay it. They also, you know, they probably won't get the loans or exit, et cetera. So that's usually the part where working class students have to leave their studies because they can't afford to do the master's. And I was at elite university once in, and I was in a meeting where they were discussing candidates to get this very rare um, money to do a master's degree, they chose the person who'd been to a private school. And the reason they chose that person is because they thought that person would be more likely to make the most of, you know, of the master's. And they chose that person over other working class students um, because they just thought that that, that you know, the, 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 this person had been to a very privileged elite school in France and they thought that that person would be you know would be more they'd be able to take advantage of the good things that the university could give and I just sat there in shock and horror because I was like well I thought this funding would be about helping somebody who couldn't afford to come and there was like no no it's about the best student it was shocking to me. I was, I, you know, I remember, and I've had all these different experiences over universe, working in universities. I listen to the things that they say. I read the things that they write. And then I experience it completely different. And mm. it's, it's been a real uh, education in the class system, actually, being in universities. What, what do you think of the argument from people who say, well, it should be the best person? So the, the one thing is like, you know, you should always just pick the best person because otherwise it becomes quite patronizing. And if, you, mm. if you're doing it via quotas and so on, then people think, well, you're just here because you're in this kind of box yeah. or whatever. And then the other thing is that um, sometimes when you uh, universities kind of push to allow more students in, it is done on the basis of, you know, inclusion and so on. Yeah. But it's often just a cash grab. Right. They, yes. They, yeah. 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 They're lowering well, standards to get more students. Yeah. And, and again, that I mean, that really shows the the deep inequalities within the university system, because when we're talking about the cash grabs, the sort of bums on seats, we're not talking about the Russell Group universities. You know, we're talking about the post 92s because that is what they have had to do to survive. So in order to give working class, because the thing is, I think everybody should should are entitled to a good education, everybody. 
Um, and I think that people should be able to do that at different points in their life. I advocate like a, an education account that every single person has, and they can use that at different points in their life, which makes more sense than forcing 18 year olds to go and do these things that they're, you know, they're not sure they want to do. Um, and I, but the thing is the Russell Group universities, they offer much more than the education. They offer status, um, they offer, you know, I'm a Bordeauxian, so I sort of speak in the language of capital. So at a Russell Group, at a good Russell Group university, you get social capital, you know, you get cultural capital, you get, you know, that you can swap that degree for a good job, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the elite universities are kept elite, not through, you know, they'll say it's through competition, but if you've had a student, and I've met loads, I've met lots of them at Russell Group universities that not only have gone to private schools, but they've had private tuition as well. And they do get the best grades, but are they really, you know, are, are they the best student? You know, they've had the, they've had the, they've had the best education, but that doesn't mean that they're the best Student. No, that's so true. I think like when I think of, you know, I've been teaching for 15 years, when I go back through my stars, you know, the students who just made me go, wow, you were never the best in the sense that they got the best grades. Yes. And I always felt like there was this, I don't know, uh, a healthy kind of rebellion in the people who, you know, would turn in this incredibly insightful paper full of flaws and because they didn't show up to class a bunch of times, you know, and you're like, God damn, you know, yeah. but because they haven't really, they don't have that capital, right? And they, maybe they don't feel like they belong or whatever. And yeah. that's how I was with university. I was absolutely flipping terrified of everybody. But they were always the ones who were like, felt a little uneasy about everybody nodding in agreement and would just, you know, be critical. And they had that spark in them. And they didn't get good grades and they were maybe yep. a little difficult, you know, and they were always the best. And there was always that flame. I was like, fan, yeah, yeah. Fan, you know? but they're always, but that, but those students that you get, what you usually find, I mean, this is how, this is how I experienced university. I went to the university of Nottingham, which was, which is quite a posh university. I didn't know that because I was from a working class firm. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know it was a posh university until I got there. And when I got there, I was the only mature student I was the only person with a local accent I was definitely the only mother and I was the only person who lived on a council estate everybody else who was like me at the university worked in the canteen they weren't they weren't students um and I started off I remember the first thing I handed in I think I got like 37 percent and I was crushed I was like oh my god I'm never going to be able to be as good as these 18-year-olds. You know, my my work was so far behind because I'd not, I don't know, you know, I'd left school with no education and then I'd worked in factories and shops for the, for the last 15 years. So obviously I didn't know how to write an essay. I didn't know how to structure a sentence. I still don't know now, if I'm being honest. I still, you know... I've got 18 year old, you know, there'll be 18 year old students who just come from private schools and private tuition who can wipe the floor with my grammar. But that's not what's important. It's what you say and what your ideas are. So 
I had to learn to write like them. So not only was I at university learning all the new stuff like they were, I was having to learn how to write like them as well and how to do the things that they do. So I had to learn those things. Um, but by the end of my degree, I was getting better grades than they were because they, they, you know, they had come in on 60s and 70s, but they never got any higher. Whereas for me, I started off in 30s and ended up, you know, doing a PhD. Now, that is an education. I had an education. I had, you know, by going to university in my 30s, I had a proper education. I don't think that the young people who are going in, who, who you know, A-levels are this, you know, massive stress for them. And these are so important. And, the, you know, they're, they're, it's basically if they fail the A-levels, their lives are over. I don't think they get the education that I had. Visit patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley for part two.